Hi, I'm Adrian Lee, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. On Tuesday, at COP26, more than 100 countries, including Canada, promised to end deforestation around the world by 2030. Back at home, the battle to save some of our most valuable trees continues in British Columbia. On the same day as the COP announcement, BC proposed hitting pause on logging in a big chunk of the province's old-growth forests. That's important for everyone, because trees absorb about a third of the world's carbon dioxide emissions. I don't know that BC is quite caught up to where the rest of the world is going in terms of these targets, at least. That's Justine Hunter, the Globe's BC legislative reporter, based in Victoria. She joins us on the show today to break down what exactly BC's logging suspension means, how it'll get buy-in, and how it all fits into Canada's bigger plans to save the trees. So let's cut through the noise on this. You're listening to The Decibel. Thanks for joining us, Justine. Thanks for having me, Adrian. So let's start with the BC government's announcement on Tuesday. What exactly is the province proposing to do? Well, the provincial government has identified its most rare at-risk old-growth forests, and the plan is to make one-third of those forests off-limits to logging. It's a significant amount of land we're talking about, uh, the equivalent of 226 cities of Vancouver, and it's important land. It's the most rare, it's the most uh, high-value old-growth forests in, in British Columbia that are left. These are forests that have been described by ecologists as the white rhinos of the forests, and also the ones that are most at risk of irreversible biodiversity loss. So what the government did is they released maps of the proposed areas for deferred logging, and now what they're going to do is ask local First Nations for approval. So that's the next step. So remember, this is a temporary measure. The province is looking at what has been called a seismic shift in how we do forestry here in the province, but it's a process that is expected to take years to accomplish. So what they're doing is taking these forests, basically giving them a reprieve while the government works on forestry reforms. I mean, you've talked about these old growth forests being these white rhinos, but why exactly are they important? It's, it's not just that they are old and, and rare, right? Yeah, if you're following what's happening at COP26, there's a lot of talk about the need to halt and reverse deforestation globally, because places like the Amazon are the lungs of our planet. We need these forests intact to fight climate change. But BC's old growth forests are also globally significant, especially those ones that grow the big trees that the forest companies also prize. And BC has more biodiversity than any other province in Canada. These forests are one of the reasons for that. Their size and their complexity provide specialized habitat. And some of these big tree uh, old growth forests store more carbon than almost anywhere else in the world. So the BC government's plan is being called a deferral, uh, which isn't quite the same as protection, right? Can you explain that distinction and why it's important? Yeah, this is not permanent protection. Uh, the idea is to keep these forests standing while the province continues to figure out what they want to do with reforming the forest industry. So essentially figuring out how to keep this sector, this forestry sector, which is very important to the economy and to a lot of communities here in BC, without relying on liquidating a non-renewable resource in the meantime. So all of these proposals are subject to approval from Indigenous communities. So if a specific deferral plan is approved by the local First Nations, 
then the province would go and approach whoever holds the logging rights in that area. So the forest company can either voluntarily agree to suspend logging in these areas, and I imagine there'll be some trade-offs here, so maybe they just have to shift their logging plans to another patch of old growth, or the government, if they can't get compliance voluntarily, they can issue a, an order. And in that case, the forest company would not be eligible for any kind of compensation, at least in the near term. These temporary deferrals can last for up to 10 years, and there's no compensation on the table for the first four years. So there really is an incentive for the forest companies to work something out with government here. But a lot of steps still before we would actually see anything actually uh, change. Do experts believe that protection is ultimately the way forward that we need to get to that stage to make meaningful change to deforestation issues? Yeah. I mean, we've been going through decades of debates and war, the war in the woods that started back in the 1990s in British Columbia uh, at Clackwatt Sound. We've seen iterations of that for decades. And the fight has always been over, you know, one patch of ancient forest here or there or somewhere else. But really, it's broadened out to the idea that BC needs to make a shift from cutting down ancient forests that are not renewable to something where we rely on very substantial amounts of second growth forests that are uh, there have been growing in some cases for 100 years. I've been in both kinds of forests and I can tell you there's a, there's a substantial difference and I'm not an expert in uh, these kinds of things, but I do know that you can see that the scale of this is quite different. So how much of our old growth forests have already been logged? Yeah, there's been a debate for years about how much is left. So environmentalists were pitted against the government and industry about just how much was left. And, you know, there was always this argument, well, there's lots there. Well before industrial logging began in British Columbia, these ancient forests that have been untouched since the last ice age were pretty rare. There were 25 million hectares in BC, they now estimate. And today there are about 11 million hectares of ancient forests left. And about half of that are these forests of big trees that we've been talking about these iconic big forests. And then when you get down on the ground and you look at the patchwork of clear cuts that we've got all over the province, you really see that the natural undisturbed forests are even more rare. And some of them have less than 1% of the historic amount of old growth left. One thing that stands out as a big challenge to the BC government's plan is the size and the importance of the province's forestry industry, of course. What have you been hearing from people in the industry about the plan ahead? Yeah, there's a lot of uh, concern from the forest industry. You saw an immediate condemnation of this plan from both the forest industry and from uh, communities that depend on forestry because, uh, you know, they, they don't agree, first of all, with the government's accounting of just what's at stake. And they estimate not 4,500 jobs, but 18,000 jobs at stake here. The forest industry's statement was that the closure of as many as 20 sawmills they foresee as a result of these changes if they go ahead. So there's a lot of angst about this. And if the idea is to provide certainty for the forest industry by making it clear what's going to be on the table and what's off the table, there's still going to be considerable uncertainty for the next little while as we work through this process. But what do you make of the government's plan itself around transitioning folks into other industries if the very likely job losses come to pass? So it is a difficult shift, but we're also at a point where the shift is going to happen regardless 
you know, and it's just a question of whether we do it, uh, you know, as smoothly as possible. Because there there are only so many more of these big old growth trees that are going to be available to cut. I spoke to one of the experts that the government has retained to help them come up with these maps here that this whole plan is based on. And she concludes that within the next five years, we're going to start running out of some of these old growth forests that the forest industry is depending on. So the shift to getting more jobs out of every tree we cut is is something that is uh, sort of already underway, but obviously more needs to be done. The other big issue is that, as you've mentioned, some First Nations communities are also major players in the forestry industry. Do you have a sense for why the government might be giving First Nations just 30 days to decide whether or not to get on board with its plan? Yeah, there is a lot of pressure to get going on this plan. The the environmentalists have been complaining for at least two years about the government having made this big commitment to change the way it approaches old growth forests. And then they're continuing to log the whole time. So they call it a talk and log tactic. But I don't think the government can hold anyone to this 30-day limit. This will be a test of the government's commitment to its legislative requirement to follow the principles of the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. So the government has created, through the Indian Act, more than 200 First Nations bans. So that means today that the government needs to consult with each one of these for any deferrals in their traditional territory. So there's a lot of work to be done at a lot of different tables. And I'd also remind people that there's no single voice on this issue from Indigenous communities. There'll be some places where the deferrals will go ahead. And in other places, we'll see people saying, no, we're not going to participate in this. We we want to continue uh, with finally getting some control over what happens and in some piece of the resource development in our, in our territories. So amidst all these seeming sticky wickets of governance, uh, it, it feels like this plan, in a way, potentially puts First Nations and Indigenous communities in the position of being scapegoated around deforestation. The idea that, well, they need to get on board with this plan, but not sure what we can do otherwise, which hits on against some of the contradictions you just mentioned. Yeah, it's it's the irony of saying, you know, after years and years and years of, um, you know, First Nations fighting to have any control over what happens in their land, they're now being stuck in that position of being the ones that have to make that decision between jobs and the environment. And that's a, that's a tough one. It's been a tough one for governments. And in a way, they've offloaded this in a little way. But at the same time, I have to say that, you know, the government is right to be consulting with First Nations. It's just that the timing of this and the way it's been structured and the putting the all this um, imperative on the, these communities to make this decision in a rush is a difficult one. Trees feel like they're fundamentally part of the Canadian national mythology, right? From the maple leaf on the flag to, I guess, the nature that Canadians associate so deeply with our identity. What is your own personal relationship to trees? Well, I've grown up on the West Coast here, and uh, I live in one of the most amazing places, I have to say. Um, Here on southern Vancouver Island, I can drive for two hours and get out into one of these amazing old-growth forests. Um, and where you, the only path you can find is something that's been cut by a Roosevelt elk. And there's, there's, there is a very different feel to that. And I've also 
you know, grown up in a community that's benefited from the, you know, the jobs that are created in forestry because that's been paying the bills in BC for over, more than 100 years. So I can see the, the debate and I've also uh, been talking to First Nations for a long time about what they want to see happen in their communities. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, reconciliation that needs to take place here. And, and uh, you can see how the frustration over, you know, government saying, well, we will allow logging without your say-so. And then when as soon as, the, you know, the, thing, the, the resource is running out, we're now saying, oh, well, now we have to make a decision and that might cost you. So I do get a sense of, um, from just from being on the ground and talking to people here, um, of how difficult this transition is going to be. And speaking of frustration and also the personal relationship Canadians have with trees, uh, that's in a way on full display in an area of BC right now called Fairy Creek. So the logging of old growth forests there has sparked this ongoing two-year protest, which has surpassed a thousand arrests, making it Canada's largest act of civil disobedience. You've been reporting on Fairy Creek and we're on the show talking about it back in June. Can you tell us where things stand now? Yeah, I get uh, just about every day I get an email in my inbox from the RCMP giving me the latest tally of how many people have been arrested up there. So this dispute began in uh, this watershed on southern Vancouver Island. It happens to be in the Premier of British Columbia's backyard in his constituency um, that was defined as the last intact watershed in the region that hadn't been logged. So people were out there starting in August of 2020, and they were blockading uh, the forest company there and trying to stop logging. Uh, since then, we've had we're getting close to 1,200 now arrests, and they're still continuing every day. The RCMP are going in and enforcing an injunction that's been on and off again. Um, but the area up there is, is, you know, the government could say today that they were going to stop logging all over Ferry Creek, and it would not stop the protest because it's become something much bigger. It's become this demand for an end to old growth logging in British Columbia. And as you can see, when what we've been talking about here today is not a proposal to stop old growth logging. What they're talking about is pausing logging in some places while we continue a conversation. And when I think of the larger debate that is going on at COP26 around countries around the world, including Canada, tackling deforestation and trying to reverse it by the year 2030 that's a little you know a little more than 8 years out i don't know that bc is quite caught up to where the rest of the world is going in terms of these targets at least that's right that's another piece of this that's come up which is that canada was on the world stage at cop26 making that promise but the thing that's striking is that forestry is a provincial jurisdiction and you know is it the case just looking at how forestry works and is distributed in the country that as BC goes, so goes the nation. You know, there's really not a huge ideological divide between the NDP government of British Columbia and the federal liberal government. You know, they both talk about the same things in terms of wanting to tackle climate change, wanting to protect biodiversity. And then you sit down and you say, okay, well, what are you guys doing collectively? And there seems to be this gap. So during the, uh, at the start of the federal election campaign this fall, Jonathan Wilkinson, who was then the environment minister, came out and said, here's $50 million to protect old growth in British Columbia. And that offer was, you know, predicated on them getting reelected. They are reelected, and that money presumably is on the table now. 
What was John Horgan's reaction? The premier scoffed at this money and said, well, add a zero to that and then let's talk. Some estimates, if you were to, to actually stop old growth logging in BC, the amount of money that would be required in terms of compensation would be around $500 million. So the premier wasn't far off. But that doesn't mean that the federal government is responsible for all of that. Uh, but it does mean that there's significant dollars involved in making this shift. And uh, there's going to be, if Canada wants to live up to its commitments that it's just made on the world stage around conservation and protection of biodiversity and around uh, actually fighting deforestation, they're going to have to come to the table as well. Beyond money, is there a way that you see the federal government being able to bring BC to the table to get on board with the more aggressive approach Canada is now pledging? Well, we have a new environment minister uh, representing Canada, and uh, he's over there with BC's Minister for Environment in Glasgow right now. Maybe they need to sit down over a glass of single malt and have a conversation. It's wild that that's still the way people do it. <laughs> I'm not saying it is, but maybe that would work. I don't know. They could send some back, too. Well, thanks for sharing all that with us, Justine. Thanks, Adrian. That's it for today. I'm Adrian Lee. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer. Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks to our guest, Justine Hunter. Email us at thedecibel at globeandmail.com. If you want to reach me, I'm grudgingly on Twitter at Adrian K. Lee. Tell your friends about us and make sure you're following us on your favorite podcast app, too. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back with you tomorrow. <laughs>